Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host today, Grant. Uh, with me today, I'm really lucky to have, I think, the, uh, the uh, most into-the-job guy that I've ever met in my life, um, Chief Bob Pressler. Um, he currently serves as Assistant Chief of the Christiana Delaware Fire Department, uh, former Chief of Montgomery, New York, uh, spent time in FDNY, uh, currently still teaches up at FDTN. I'm sure all the fire nerds know about that uh, and played a big role in the hands-on training uh, for FDIC. So uh, without further ado, uh, welcome Chief Pressler. How you doing? Very good, sir. How are you tonight? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. So first a little bit, like I'm blown away. You came down to, to help us in Astero with our Lieutenant um, Academy that we were running and you know, I've met you before. I've gotten to work with you a little bit um, in in different venues, but I can't believe how into the job you are. Um, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into the fire service and how you got so passionate about everything? My dad was a police officer by trade, but he joined the volunteer fire department. So like every little kid, you know, I went with him to the firehouse. And uh, it was just kind of fascinating. Probably in 1964, 65, I was 10 or 11 years old. They started a junior firefighter program in Crestville, New Jersey. And uh, I was there like mascot. <laughs> and this New York Sunday Daily News did a story on it. And I had my picture in the newspaper hanging out of the old white rescue truck. And it just kind of piqued my interest. So that was the start of it. Um, I went to high school in Crestville, and then when I was turning 18 is when New Jersey changed the rules about when you could become an interior fireman. So uh, I became an interior fireman at 18 years old, and you know, I've been chasing it ever since. Took as many classes as I could find, went to everything I could learn. Uh, went to Oklahoma State, got a degree in fire protection engineering, came back, started taking tests, started, uh, got my first career job in Summit, New Jersey, small combination department. I, I got it on the career side. Then uh, I ended up getting New York City. So it's just something I've always enjoyed. I can't get enough of it. And it's you know, you're trying to trying to get a little bit better every day. Yeah, that's just crazy. And I think a lot of people I hear, they get in the fire service, they know they want to do it. They land their first job and, and they kind of get stuck or content with the rhythm and the flow of that department. Uh, but not you. <laughs> you uh, were seeking busier, more constantly. What, yeah, uh, it's, it's actually, I was going to say, it's a pretty interesting dynamic um, I've done a couple of classes, and one of the things we talked about is how long do you have to capture a guy or a gal? You know, I'm, I'm all fast calling fire and stuff. Um, but how long do you have to capture a new person's interest so that they want to become a student of the game and don't get into the becoming a slug end of the, the spectrum? And what happened was um, a guy I stood near in probie school. We went out to the field. I went to 255 Engine, who historically ran pretty much till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning every night. Um, we had bars that closed at 4, so a lot of times you get a pullbox at 4 o'clock in the morning. 
<clears throat> and he went to a lower Manhattan company that pretty much shut down when the people went home from work. And I met up to him the following year at Patty's Day. And it was like, hey, how you been? What's going on? And uh, he said, oh, we had a terrible night last night. And I'm like, oh, we'd have like 10 runs after midnight. He goes, no, we had one run after midnight. <laughs> and to them, that was a terrible night because they had to get up. And meanwhile, I'm in a place that never went to bed, you know, so it was that start of those different dynamics. <clears throat> and the more running you do, the more attuned you are with the job. And if you decide that that extra running isn't what you're there for, you gravitate to a slower place and it's just a different atmosphere. You know, so the more you can give your young people the earlier in their career, the better chance you're having of snaring them and getting them to become students of the game. Yeah, it definitely feels like uh, if you get the runs, uh, you want to be prepared. But if you're not getting the runs, you're not getting challenged. It's easy to fall back into that, that complacency side. Um, we talked a little bit before about uh, you got into when you got into FDNY in the probie school uh, and that whole concept. Can you can you hit that a little bit? Well, you know, we, our probie school is six weeks long. And, uh, you know, we didn't come out as, uh, you know, firefighter one and two, hazmat technicians, uh, confined space, you know, any, there were no other disciplines. They were teaching you to be a fireman. So it was stretching lines, throwing ladders, um, more stretching lines, a little bit of search, singing in the smokehouse. You know, we were doing the things that you were going to do your first day out there. And it seems like the American Fire Service now wants us to be the jack of all trades, um, but at the expense of, of going to fires. And, you know, a, a gentleman I know, he went to a place and he was in school for 26 weeks. And in 26 weeks, they went into the burn building, I think it was three times. And he came out with, you know, all the different certifications. He could do everything except for probably be good at the fire. And that's where the fire service has gotten a little bit sideways. <clears throat> you know, if, you, if you're going to a place where probably your first 50 runs are going to be house fires or calls for fires, then knowing how to do high angle work probably isn't what you need to do. You need to have to stretch a line get the front door open and be able to perform a search. So what is, uh, do you know what probie school is now for FDNY lengthwise? I believe it's up to 18 weeks now. Um, you know, there, there are some extra things. I believe now they're going to come out as firefighter one and two. And, you know, even that, this, this national standard, you know, we always laugh. If you take the national registry, EMT, can you be an EMT in all 50 states? And it's absolutely not. <laughs> they call it that, but that doesn't mean you can do it in certain places. So firefighter one and two might be great to have, but what does that do for the place that you're going to work? Are they going to go volunteer? You know, may, the things they taught you may not be the things that you do in that particular fire department. So you know, it, it's just, We've gotten so caught up in being qualified and having all these different certifications, we've lost sight of what we're supposed to be doing. 
So how did you guys, I know we talked a lot about Christiana, Delaware, and you guys seem to have stuff very dialed in there. Uh, great group of guys uh, uh, getting, getting some work. When we sent some guys up to FDTN, we got to marry up. We were on the engine while they were on the truck and vice versa. So it was cool to work with those guys. How are you guys onboarding people? And what's that training program like? Well, what we look for is for you to have the basics of firefighter one. Um, of course, it never used to be called that. You know, it's, it, that's had a lot of different names. And then we teach you our way. So we, we don't want someone that has no training whatsoever. We want them to be able to wear a mask. And, and then we take care of pretty much the rest. But it's the same thing. We're not, we're not going crazy about what they're able to do. They're not getting certified as, as hazmat technicians or, you know, um, high angle rope technicians or collapse specialists. Now we have guys that have got that training on their own. The career staff gets a lot of that by their fifth year. But the, the people that start new there, they're learning how to stretch lines, throw ladders, force doors, do it again, stretch lines, force ladders. Yeah, force doors, throw ladders. It's just a continuation of that so they can't get it wrong. And that's the beauty of it. You know, a lot of them, by the time they stretch on their first fire, they've stretched 50 times already between rookie school and then just coming to the firehouse. And that's what we stress. Be real good at this. There's enough guys around that have a little bit more skills or um, classes. You know, if we go to uh, someone down in a trench, well, first there's a county team coming, but we have enough guys that have the knowledge that'll make up for you. And, and it's, you know, it's that we, we can't do everything real good. We have to be able to do some things real good. And for us, it's fires. How did you instill that culture at Christiana or was it already there or how did you it, get it to that? It was there because it's always been a busy place. Um, I would think the only thing that's changed since I've been going there is the disciplines of the companies. You know, the truck always had been very disciplined. Um, the engine sometimes, not so much. Uh, and now, you know, everyone has a job that rides the fire truck and they're held to that job. You don't see the, uh, the hydroman grabbing the nozzle. And if he does, he's going to be talked to. You know, I mean, it's the discipline is what separates fire companies from each other. Being able to do the job you're supposed to do in spite of what everybody else is doing. Um, you talked about, we talked a little bit about FDNY and whatnot. Can you talk about the discipline in FDNY and like job specific tasks, tool assignments and all that? Yeah, everything in New York City is written down. So, you know, the engine bulletin and, and in fact, you know, the engine truly never had a bulletin. Um, it was just about getting a line in service and they talked about the nozzles and different things, but there was no engine bulletin. That is an engine company, you know, book. Um, but the truck was always specific, told you by position, what tools to take, what your job was, how to get to where you were going to go do that job and then how to do it. So there was no, well, I thought I was supposed to go do something else. Well, no, you had the can, you're supposed to be here. You were the OV, these were your options. This was the roof band. You were going to the roof. 
So it was always very specific, you know, by position. So when you were a young firefighter in the truck, you usually had the can. Then you'd graduate to the bar, you know, it's the irons. Then after that, the roof, and then finally the OV. And all those things had specific things you had to learn in order to be able to perform those functions. But it was all written down. So uh, how, uh, guys listening to say, that sounds awesome. You took FDNY, the discipline, you guys are using that stuff in Christiana. How does Joe Blow in an average size, three or four person rig, small department, how do they, can they take that same concept? Well, that, that would have to start with the company officer because most small departments aren't going to write anything down. You know, they'll have a, a policy on how to fight a fire in a high school and they won't address how to go to a fire in a single family house. You know, so the company officer has to set that tone. And sometimes it's just, hey, when I'm here, this is what I expect, because you don't always get the same guys. But, you know, then the drills become important. The training operation has to be some sort of um, follow through on the training so that everybody's teaching the same thing. You know, I can't go down this Tuesday night and get a drill from you and have it one way and go down next Tuesday night and have a repeat of the drill and another guy saying, no, we don't do that when I'm here. You know, you have to come up with that simple way of doing things that everyone is taught, you know, and then at least they know that much. It's always easier to call an audible from a plan than to try to devise a plan when something's on fire. So it's just getting the, the continuity and the training that sets the tone for how the fire department's going to operate when they're on a fire ground. Do you have any suggestions for establishing a consensus for how we get to that point? There's a best practice, <laughs> you know, simple, simple usually wins, but how do you get consensus? Well, and you know what? And sometimes you don't. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. We, we talk about in, uh, in, in Christianity, there's still some things that, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, is there a little bit better way or not a better way? And one of the things we tell the young firefighters, if you're in doubt, ask the boss that day. Who's riding up front? Say, hey, you know, we talked the other day about whatever it is. You know, what, what do you want? If it's your the company officer and you have different chiefs, sometimes you have to ask the chief, <laughs> you know. Uh, hey, chief, you know, I know you're a little stickler for anything else I need to know. You know, the fire service is interesting. You'll never truly get consensus unless the fire chief or the training chief or someone puts their foot down and says, no, this is how we're going to do it. And then all the training has to be to that goal. But if there's no true leadership, then there's a lot of freelancing and people are just doing what they're doing. And sometimes you may not get the answer you want. Then you have to work with what you're given. Do you have any suggestions on keeping the training fresh? Like best practice seems to be best practice. I know we've been doing pretty much the same training schedule year in and year out. And we do the, the, the long stretch drills, the short stretch drills, the vertical stretch drills. We do the search months and it's the same thing. But how do you keep that fresh for folks that are like, oh, we're doing this again. I know it. Well, and, and you know what? Sometimes they're not going to be happy doing it. 
So you know by the results you see if it's time to move on to something else. So if you keep track of your drills, so you know, Christiana's engine has a bumper line, a 200 foot, a 300 foot, and a static bed, right? So we have options of what we can have you stretch. A lot of times the bumper line, which is very simple, gets overlooked because it's pretty much usually for car fires. Um, the 200 is the bread and butter, most private houses right off the curb, you know, the 300s apartment houses. Then the bundle, you have to estimate the stretch. So within each of those, you know, it was simple stretch, simple stretch with gear, time to get the line in place, call for water, mask up. So you can add things to it. But each one of those, so there's four different stretches that realistically you can do without gear on, just to go through the motions, with gear on, calling for water. You can get 10 to 12 drills on the exact same thing by varying what they're doing. You can do all of them without you know, gear on in one day. Then you add the rope stretch. Then you start talking about standpipe. Then you start talking about you know, all the other options, a two and a half inch hand line. So if you break down the engine skills by the amount of hose beds you have, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that it's not going to get boring, but, you know, very rarely does everything go exactly how you want it to. And it, when it does, that's when you throw the curveball. All right, we're going to the fifth floor, one of your hotels, right? We're going to have to stretch the standpipes out of service. How much hose we need to get to the fifth floor? How much hose we need to cover that building? What if we picked the wrong staircase? You know, and sometimes they don't actually have to go out and do it. It's the conversation at the kitchen table that's going to set up that drill. It gets them thinking. So you vary the topics, you vary how you do it, and you throw in those oddball ones. So if you're teaching, uh, teaching your guys a new skill, how does that look like for you? So if, if it's a brand new skill, you want to try to leave it just as that one skill, right? Don't make it part of seven other different things. So we always kid around, stretching a line to the front door of a private house. How many different skills are involved in it? Right? It's picking the right size line, stretching that line, flaking it out, getting dressed, right? So there's three or four skills. So I'll give you an example. Getting masked up with your gloves on, right? It became a big thing in the fire service. Everybody's supposed to do it. If you can't, you're a coward, whatever they're saying this week, right? But do you want that to be part of the stretching, flaking the line out drill? Or should that be around the firehouse for 15 minutes if that's what you want to teach them? So you don't want to put all four things into the drill for a brand new person. You want to get them through each step of the drill until you put it all together into the actual stretching, getting dressed, flaking out the line, getting your face piece on, on air, calling for water. Does that make sense? Yeah. You, know, you want to you want to put it all one step at a time. Certainly does. Um, and I think getting guys wins too. I think sometimes uh, I've heard instructor boredom is when we change up the drill a little bit and we want to make it interesting because we've done the same drill with eight other crews uh, that we're going to make yep. this one challenging. I, I think 
there's definitely a benefit into having crews see success. Uh, and if we always, we always take them right to the brink of failure. Um, I don't think they get, end up getting real confident in those skills. No, especially when you're teaching the basics, the failure can come when they're trying to do a fifth floor stretch that they never do. And it takes them 17 minutes to get the line to the fifth floor. Right. So that now you break that hole back down and, so how do you do it different? So we've been stretching a bundle out of Christiana. So the one night we stretched it into our tower, you know, and you're going basically at a lower level and it goes, if you go all the way to the roof, it's like four floors. And, you know, they went to the second floor, then they went to the third, then it went to the fourth, then it went to the fifth. And each one got harder when you only have two guys stretching. You know, where do I take my folds to? Our thing is the nozzle man never gives up his folds. Right. So he's keeping his 50 foot with him. That's to move into the fire area. So now that backup guy, maybe the officer, maybe the chauffeur, they're all real busy getting lined into the right places. So there's a lot of thinking that goes into that. than stretching to the front door of a ranch style house. Even as simple as estimating a stretch. You know, we did a little bit when I was down there. You're parked here. How much hose to get to the front of the building? How much hose to get to the third floor rear apartment? You know, then those are all things, because if your nozzle man gives up his 50 feet, he can never move into the fire area. It's a discipline. It's training. It's talking it through. It's going out and doing it. And those are even simple things that guys can practice when they're running the red calls, too. You know, wherever the rig parks, you come back out and you say, all right, rig the door, door to seat, and anything vertical. And if they get comfortable doing that routinely on the med calls, they're not going to think anything of it on the fire calls. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're a little different. We stretch on every run, you know, report of smoking the building, uh, any kind of run we stretch, you know, and the guys get good at stretching. The OV takes a lot of heads to the rear, gets good at doing that. The aerial or tower operator, you know, was looking for a place to be able to get that bucket or stick up to the roof or the top floor, whatever his objective is. But we do it enough that that becomes that second nature stuff. They're always looking for a place to get the aerial up or get the towel ladder up because that's what we do. And you just a repetition makes you good at it. Was that always the culture for Christiana or did it take some time to, to introduce? It was always floating around there. Like I said, once we started running the truck, most of the time. So when I went there, the truck was only staffed when it was a truck run. We never had enough people. Weekends, we'd have enough. We'd run both. But most times, it was the engine, sometimes loaded. Um, and the truck, you'd switch to the truck if it was going on a truck box. But as we started running it more frequently, we realized that we were going to need something in order to make this work. You know, so we have riding assignments for three, four, five, and six-man crews. And, you know, it's all written down, but it took a while. And, you know, what happens if this guy can't do this? Well, who's going to do that? <clears throat> but eventually we have it dialed in. And when you come out of rookie school, you can only ride either the bar and can or you can't ride the truck at all. And, you know, that's based on what you showed you in forceful entry and uh, how you did with the searches. So, you know, then we groom you to start riding the truck. And, you know, after stretching a line 50 times, you go down your four stores 30 times, 40 times. You know, you get dressed, you do a search. You know, so we, we keep harping those simple things, um, and it becomes part of what everybody does. 
that's the beauty of it. That's awesome. Um, for guys that don't know what Christiana is, can you give us just a quick little uh, Cliff Notes version of Christiana and your makeup? So it's a, it's a combination fire department in uh, Newcastle County, Delaware. We probably cover about 105,000 people. I believe it's 38 square miles. Um, most times we have an engine staffed 100% of the time, a truck staffed probably 99% of the time, um, a second engine 35 or 40% of the time, maybe if we're lucky. We're doing over 4,000 fire runs, 11,000 ambulance runs a year. Um, so it's a pretty active place. And uh, if you want to ride there, you know, you, you're going to go on runs. It's a... Uh, a little bit of a depressed neighborhood, I guess you'd put it. Um, a lot of Section 8 housing, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, a lot of shootings, overdoses. We have two highways, so we get a lot of good wrecks. So it's got a little bit of everything. And that's what people gravitate there for is because you're going to be busy. You know, they had a good fire, um, not last night, two nights ago. They were the third due engine and the second due truck. Um, third due engine had the exposure to themselves for a while, had the whole attic going, a side by side duplex, you know. So there's there's some good stuff that happens there, and that's what draws the people to come to it. That's awesome. So I gotta ask. Uh, well, I kind of know the answer, but I want to ask for everybody else. Uh, why do you keep doing it for as long as you have? What, what what's what is what's the draw? Well, you want to go to one more fire. I mean, I, I think the fun part now is I'm, I'm riding with my son whenever I can. You know, so my son's uh, going to have five years in Wilmington, Delaware, which is a small career city. Um, six, well, basically six engines, two trucks. It's five engines, two trucks and a squad, but the squad acts like an engine if they're first two. Um, <clears throat> so I get to ride with him. He's a captain now in Christiana. Uh, the night he got voted in as a fireman, I was his engine officer. I took him to his first fire, which was a lot of fun. And now I've gone to fires where I've been the truck boss. He's been the engine boss. And now I get to run fires where he's, you know, usually the first two engine boss or the first two truck boss. So it keeps me going, you know. And what, what's it about? You hit 50 years yet in the fire service? This is my 50. I started in 72 as an interior fireman. And you're not just hanging on at 50 years. I was with uh, you and uh, Chief Lombardo at Fort Lauderdale this past year, and we're doing some live fire and, and I'm expecting being the younger guy, I'm going to get to go in and do some stuff. And you guys are like, Hey, we're going to go and take the first few rounds. You can go in when we're done. And like three hours goes by and neither one of you come out <laughs> and you're just, <laughs> just absolutely smoke eaters loving it. Uh, that's crazy. Well, but there's more to that though than just us being in there though too. We always take great responsibility for the other instructors and the students. You know, so one of us will always be at the fire. You know, we've done this forever. We were out in California earlier this year, you know, and we anything we did, if it was on fire, one of us lit and one of us was on the safety line. So that's part of it. Um, but yeah, you know, you do it until you can't, I guess. What, uh, 
So get into the live fire a little bit because you guys been doing live fire for a long time. You teach out at FDCN. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the Disneyland of all training meccas. Uh, what are you guys doing out there? What was that whole concept you helped help build out there? So Jimmy McCormick had the idea for FDTN. Um, you know, we were just the, the starters that went with him when he opened. It'll be 20 years next year, actually. And uh, Timmy Clint did a lot of the engine procedures. I did a lot of the truck stuff. And we built the class around it. But we built it. It sounds silly, but we built it around the same things we were all doing. You know, we didn't, someone didn't say, hey, did you ever do this on the door? And everybody goes, wow, that's amazing. No, it was all the simple basics. And the thing about Jimmy's is the fires change. When you go to engine one, truck one, you force doors, you stretch lines, you go to apartment fires. When you come back for engine two, truck two, you force tougher doors, you throw ladders in harder places, you cut holes in different places, and the fires become bigger and you get to use two and a half. So, you know, we build on everything that we do, but it's all based on the, on the, uh, on the basics, you know, so he's got a great place going there. Um, and no one's ever come and said, wow, this was terrible. I don't want to come back. Well, people have done it, but they weren't firemen. <laughs> you know, we've had people that just decided it wasn't for them. A um, couple of camps ago, after the first rotations of the basement fire, a guy comes up and says, Hey, is Jimmy around? I go, uh, Yes. Can I get, you know, what do you need? He goes, I, I want to talk to him. I have no business being here. You know, and very honest guy. And he was in way over his head. You know, I had to give him credit for that. But, you know, doing that and doing live burns in an acquired structure is a lot different, too. And I think that's where Mike and I have done very well. But we do believe in that when one of us is lighting, the other one's on the safety line. You know, and I've done with Timmy Clett. It was the same thing. We always tried to have one of us lighting, one of us near the safety line. So, you know, all those things come together. Everybody falls back on 1403, makes it harder and harder to, to do a live burn. And we have firefighters that are going to their first real fire, and it's their first real fire. And, you know, that's not right either. Yeah, well, it's cool. You guys take tremendous responsibility uh, in, in doing that and making sure that it's done right. Uh, man, it's so easy for somebody else to, well, you throw, have to throw an extra bale of hay on here. Let's throw a couple extra pallets and see what, see what happens. And that's when stuff goes sideways. Yeah. We had that happen to us burning a hospital in Connecticut, but, uh, very rarely do we have that happen because we, we light the fire. We see that stuff, <laughs> you know, if there's too much stuff, they haven't taken out. Um, I love what Jimmy says that uh, the difference between a basic and an advanced fire is just heat and smoke. Can you talk a little bit about that concept and how you guys do your teaching, teaching stations out there? Yeah. So when you go to engine one, truck one, it, it's good for new firefighters, guys that, you know, one to two years on a job in slower places. Um, but we've had guys that go through with 15, 18 years on a job and said they wish they'd done it 18 years ago. But all we do there is we set up a program for you to learn those basic skills. So when you go to engine one, you, just like I talk about Christiana, you stretch lines. You stretch this line, you stretch that line, you stretch it up a ladder, you throw a rope, you know, you stretch it into the apartment house, you stretch it into this place, into that place. 
it's all about stretching lines and efficiently getting one line in operation. You know, when you do the truck, it's the very basics. You force the doors. You know, we talk about power tools. Do we do searches? You know, and it's the interesting thing is we get firefighters from all over the country there. We've been doing that. I said next year will be 20 years. Um, we used to use this little trailer. Now we're using, it's a ranch style house. We're basically using three containers deep. That's 24 feet. And we're using half of those containers. So it's 20 feet, maybe 22 feet. So you do 20 times 24, 480 square feet, maybe a little bit more. And we send in teams to, to do a search. First of all, the civilians do terrible. We, we think we know how to search. We can't find obvious victims. But the interesting thing, and at 500 square feet, every class has at least one group that gets lost. And me being me, you know, and watching these guys do this now for 20 years, I can tell when they don't know where they are. So I'll stop them and say, hey, if you had to get out right now, which way would you go? And inadvertently, they point in two different directions. So then I go, all right, who has faith in the other guy or faith in yourself that if this was turned into shit right now, you could get out before you burn to death? And it's amazing how many guys that actually know which way out is don't have the faith in themselves to go with what they think is right. And they go with the other guy almost always into the wrong room. You know, so being paying attention when you're searching, you know, it's not a very hard uh, layout. It's really simple. The only thing that's odd about it is the hallway, which you would find in a ranch style house, is wider. And whether that's what knocks them out of their element or, or something else, but it's pretty scary that in this little area, we can get guys lost. And then you read NIAS reports and reports of guys getting hurt or getting jammed up. And sometimes it's really not a mystery why it's happening. We're not as good as we think we are. So everything in NG1 truck one, I was going to say not real heat conditions, couple of good fires, you know, they, they get fires, but it's not crazy fires. When you come back to two, the fires start to get a little better and a little bit more punishing. You know, there's a couple of tough fires in engine two truck two. That's crazy. Uh, I got to experience that in uh, fire combat uh, a couple of years back. And uh, my buddy, John Lockwood, and I always laugh when it's the auto body shop fire. And uh, man, we had wind blowing pretty good that day. And the, literally the smoke was triangle smoke coming out of there. So anytime we see uh, somebody <laughs> say they got a tough fire, we go, yeah, but was it triangle smoke? Cause <laughs> that was triangle. Blowing smoke. 15 feet away from the building before it would break up. Right. Uh, yeah. So that, yeah. that's our, you know, they're, they're tough fires, but they can be done. You know, it's just, it's, if you have this stretch down and the operation down, then all you're doing is, is humping hose, right? You're moving yeah. enough hose to get to the position to put water on the fire. If, if you haven't talked about that stretch or practiced that two and a half inch stretch, it goes in 15 feet, makes the first turn and it sits there because nobody's bringing in line. 
you know, it's not rocket science. <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple stuff we have to be good at. Yeah. So I've got a couple things in my head, but I want to hear from somebody that's been watching this for 20 years. Um, a lot of things guys think they can do because they train on it back home and they bring, come to FDTN and it doesn't work. What are those things or mistakes that you see common? I can probably think of three or four right off the top of my head, but what, what do you, what do you guys see? So, so the biggest thing is, you know, when, when you look at your response area, right? So I was down in your district and most of your fires, it would appear to be, are going to be in ranch style houses, right? So you guys get, you get pretty good at that because there's not a lot of curveballs, you know? So I think that's a lot. It's true for a lot of people that come to FDTM. They've pretty much dialed in their operation at home, but our buildings throw a bunch of curveballs at you. You know, and you go back to the simple estimating a stretch, standing in a position saying the engine's here, we can't get any closer. I need you to get a line to the second floor of that building or through this gangway to the ranch style house or the garage in the rear. How much hose do you need? And I think that's what does a lot of people in that we all of a sudden put them in a building that they're not used to stretching in and they're not confident in their skills. So it turns into a shit show. That's probably the most common one. What about uh, flashlights? Pacifiers, right? That, that's all they are. Everybody likes to wear a flashlight on their chest. They turn it on, they're getting smoke and all they see is a glow. And, you know, I started calling them a pacifier. You look down, you go, oh, I'm still here because I can see my light. But the problem with that is you can't see anything else. You know, so once we moved them to the chest, they became more of a detriment than they are a help. You know, we always used to wear them on our waist, so they weren't flashing up here. They didn't block your vision of rollover or fire trying to look around the corner. And then when you crawl and got down low, it was, on, it was aiming at the floor. But it never really was in front of your face. Once we all went to these, you know, chest-mounted lights, all you get is this big orb of, of some kind of light. And it makes you comfortable because you see something, but it keeps you from seeing the fire. So we tell the engine, no light truck. If you find something that you need to identify, turn it on real quick. Um, but, you know, the better you can get without the lights, the better you're going to be. Uh, that being said, what kind of light do you carry? Or uh, did you get Mike to start carrying or what do you got? I, I know flashlights have their, have their place, but. Yeah. And we were, you know, so it's funny. I uh, used to carry the Sears uh, six volt lantern, you know, that was first. Then Chicago started carrying divers lights. And a couple of guys in New York started carrying them. So both him and I ended up with the divers lights, still the six volt battery, but all, you know, worn on your hip. And now I just use a box light off the truck. Just sling it over my shoulder. I have nothing on my chest. My radio mic. Uh, what about speed when you can't see and you're feeling heat? Uh, what do you see that that happens, That the difference between the speed at FDTN and the speed that guys are drilling, you know, maybe with the candy smoke or when they have visibility? Well, yeah, they're invincible when there's no conditions, right? 
Right. And how many places vary where they do their searches? So you go to your academy, you got a room that has a bed and it's a square room, right? Everybody knows the room. So you go charging in there, you go to the one place they can hide the victim, but then you add smoke. And we see it a lot with the forceful entry at, at FDTN. You know, the first time you do the doors, it's a blue door out in the middle of the garage. Then you move into the prop and you do it without your face piece on. Then with your face piece on, then with smoke and finally with smoke and heat. And at the end, you know, we've added a lot of stuff to your plate. And you thought you knew how to force the door until it got hot. The other thing we found out there is that, you know, gap set force. Too many guys were spending so much time on the gap. If the gap didn't win, they were done. So we've start, we stopped teaching the gap. We make guys force it just with the fork. And you ought to see that show. And especially by the time you add the heat and smoke. But we're creating better people at forceful entry because they're working on tough doors. They're not working on the door that they can easily, you know, gap it and crack a piece of wood. For sure. So you uh, you wrote the search book for FDTN, and that's kind of you're like OG search guy. Why don't you? Well, take- I actually didn't write his little book on it. Another guy did because I just didn't get around to it. Um, but, you know, even now, all the searching out there is, is a, uh, a grouping of what all of us thought and believed. You know, so I kind of helped with the skill sessions to get them so there is a progression in them. You know, and then we start with that. We do VES. We're very particular about that. Um, you know, a lot of play- we've had people in class, oh, we're not allowed to do this. Or we're not allowed to do this unless we know there's someone there. Well, how good are you going to be, you know, if you've never done it before? So even that simple kind of stuff, you know, how many times is a guy allowed to do VES before he actually has to go in after a victim? How many times has he thrown a ladder against the side of the house and never climbed it? Now, how many times did he get in position and they said, oh, it's food on the stove, don't bother you know, so all these skills, they've done enough time so that you just second nature. That's where you want to get with your crews. Start a line, you know, well, you guys probably they get the bag out of the medic unit, right, and start a line. But calling for a hand line shouldn't be a cause for concern. They should be waiting for that order. And then the line should start. It's, there shouldn't be any question. Oh, geez, he wants a line. That's be oh Grady wants a line. We got that part down. What uh, what are we doing right in the world of search, and what are we doing wrong? Well, what we're finally doing right is there's more places that are applying VES. You know, you read a, a lot of the posts are talking about the success rate of VES. They're talking about the success rate um, of getting in ahead of the line of where we're finding the people. So we've finally taken the victim profiling, I guess, and we've given out the information of where they are and how to get to them. So as it's become a a better thing to talk about and drill on, we've become a little bit more aggressive with our searches. You know, and for some places it's been a hard transition, but being able to, you know, pop the door have smoke two feet off the floor 
without the line and go take a look for years was never accepted in places. You know, so I expect the truck to go look, especially if they've got a can man. Now, if they open up the door and it's to the floor and it's violent, they're probably not going far without the line, right? So they'll wait for the line there. But if there's survivable space five feet inside the door, why aren't they in it? And I think that's what's starting to change with search. You know, for years, the truck company was the big toolbox that parked down the corner. Nobody really did anything. They threw ladders, you know, whatever else they did, but no one was searching. The engine searched after they put water on the fire. So I think that's what's changed. Search has become something we want to do now. So between the uh, survival uh, numbers that we're getting, how successful VES is, we're starting to see more people embrace it. And we're running more truck companies. More people are looking to ride the truck to be able to get in there and try to make that search. So it's become something good to do. You talk crazy there for a minute, and I love it, uh, getting ahead of the line. Uh, we talked about that a lot uh, with our lieutenant academy that we did. And I think overwhelming the guys were kind of like, wait a minute, I'm not comfortable working by myself. So can you explain getting ahead of the line, seeing where we got to go as the boss, the importance of that? And then how do we get more comfortable with having guys working, working alone? Yeah, you know, we touched on it a lot when I was down there because guys were concerned about it. Um, so the one thing you can't teach is a comfort level, right? You can't teach decision making, can't actually make you make a decision. I can give you information and I can't teach you to be comfortable. You know, but there's times where your job as the boss is making sure the line doesn't go the wrong way. So you get up to the top of the stairs in a two-story house, smoke to the floor, you can't tell if the fire's left or right. You have to figure out which way to go with the line staying at the top of the stairs. Now, luckily, most private houses, unless you're into a mansion, that hallway on the second floor isn't more than 10 feet either side of the stairs, right? So if you just lay down and the guy holds your boot, you can stretch down six feet and you might be able to feel the heat at one end of the hall or the other. But getting comfortable being uncomfortable is part of your job. You know, I can't drag that line all over the house because what if we go the wrong way? And I use the example of a private house fire where the one window was open. So the smoke was chugging out of it pretty good. The line went upstairs, went into that room. Fire was at the other end of the house. And the fresh air coming up the stairs, the fire started drawing back to the stairs. And luckily, the second line got there. Because if not, they were going to have to fight their way out of that bedroom and hope that their line didn't burn through. So, you know, taking a peek. And it all gets based on conditions and your comfort. You know, so I talked with your guys. We said, so we popped the front door. And it's like taking the... Uh, it's like taking a pot, the cover off a pot of boiling water, right? I get that explosion of steam and smoke. And then the smoke's going to do something. So does it boil up? You know, now it's three feet from the ceiling level. And I can see all the way into the kitchen. And I can see the burning cabinets. So is there a problem going to make sure that mom isn't laying on the floor in there? Or do I close the door and wait for the line to get there? You have the vision, why don't you use it? 
Now, if I open it up and it stays right to the floor or it's rolling out with pretty good heat behind it, then the fire is closer than I want it to be. I might go two feet, you know, just to take a peek, see if I can figure out which way the fire is. Got to stay low. Guys stick their head in up at, you know, waist level. Oh, it's real hot. Well, no kidding. Get down low. The air is always a little better, a little visibility down low. You might be able to look underneath that smoke and see the glow 15 feet in. But you have to learn to move that little bit, take those little steps to get a little bit comfortable being away from holding on to somebody's hand. So talking about searching in smoke, you want to talk a little bit about searching uh, away from the fire and your thoughts on opening windows or, or anything like that? Sorry, they, you know, they tell you on the fire floor, get as far in as you can, get to where the engine's going to be. That's where the people are in the most danger. So the whole thing about taking windows comes down to water or not, right? If the line is getting in place and now they have water or they're getting ready to open the line, as soon as they open the line, the window's a fair game. And we're taking them to get the smoke out of the building for the people we haven't found. And that's the part, oh, you're breaking windows, you're breaking windows. If we're looking for people, they don't have any breathing apparatus, right? Normally, they're going to be low. They're going to be on the floor. They're going to be on a bed. So if I take the glass in a couple of rooms and get that smoke to lift 12, 18 inches, if we haven't found them yet, there's a better chance the air down there is going to be a little better. You know, so we're not taking glass before the engine has water unless it's a VES target. You know, our firefighter, if he's going to try to get in that room, he'll probably get that window out as they're getting water. So that now you understand with VES, you have to understand if you can't get that door shut, that that fire is going to come to you. You know, that's the importance of getting the door. But, but as far as searching back from the line, if I'm passing the engine and that line's charged, which it should be, we charge our line down the front porch for a first floor fire considering the whole first floor could be the fire area because there's a lack of doors, a lot of doorways, a lack of doors to isolate the fire. So if that line is on its way to me and it's charged, windows become free. Yeah, I think uh, NIST and UL did a lot of good things, but they got us so afraid to open windows and change vent profiles that uh, I think a lot of guys just think the house is going to explode. Uh, when, yeah. Once, well, once we get no that water, or not enough water, you know, again, there's so many variables in it, but, you know, a one-room fire with a line in place, windows are free. You know, and, and I guess part of the problem is, is, you know, where you run your fires. If it's a place where you almost never find victims, search has never been at the forefront of what you do. If you go to fires in a place where there are victims, search becomes a much higher priority. So, you know, you have to default to the one that gives them the best shot. So we treat every fire as there's somebody in there. So we're searching the same, whether I'm going to a million dollar you know, house or I'm going to a $50,000 shack. You know, we're looking for people in both examples. And we operate accordingly to try to give them the best shot at surviving. So I want to transition a little bit. We hit a ton of topics. Uh, I want to jump into some stories because, man, I've heard some good <laughs> stories from you. Um, 
why don't you tell me a couple search stories, victim stories, anything that sticks out that uh, about searches and victims and, and whatnot? Well, so they're not really stories, but the way I operate is based on stories and other people's, you know, being able to get to people where they found them and had they how they found them. You know, um, the ones that I found were usually visible from, um, I got one from a fire escape. They were about five rooms away from the window I went in. So understanding the layouts and the quickest way to get to that person, you know, became important. So knowing layouts, um, being able to identify the rooms, simple stuff, the rear bedroom. Well, where's the rear bedroom? Is it all the way at the back of the house or do the stairs go up to the back? So they think the rear is at the front, simple stuff like that, you know? So the searches, it's all going to be based on making sure that you think that they're in there. That's really the biggest thing about the search. You know, you have to always think that there's someone in there. When you come off the rig, you're going to work. So we had a decent fire in Christiana, came in with reports of people trapped. They threw a firebomb against the front of the house. The whole front of the house was on fire. So I took the inside team and we went around back. We came in the back door. So we were able to get all the way to the front room by the time the engine got water and came in. We basically met them as they came through. And as soon as they got water on that living area, we were able to scoot upstairs to get the searches done. You know, so it's thinking outside the box, but it's getting into places where you can get as quick as possible. That's really the secret to searches. What about victim removals? So <laughs> victim removal, you know, we do the basement prop at Jimmy's and it's, it's always kind of funny. You know, everybody wants to use webbing. Webbing became the thing to use in a fire service. So we practice it on the apparatus floor with a guy laying, you know, flat out with his arms out. We're able to walk around him and wrap him in webbing. And then at the basement fire, it's a pile of victim right at the base of the stairs. There's no room to straighten them out. There's very little you can see. It's hot. There's water flowing. And, you know, guys have a hard time now using the webbing. So the, the biggest thing with the, with the victim removal is you got to find something you can hold on to. So if a victim is burned or if the skin's coming off them or their clothes are coming off them, they become that much harder to move. So you have to be able to grab something either underneath the armpits or maybe by the two legs and be able to move them to a better place. You know, and then after you get them to a better place, you might be able to now get them into a little bit different position, easier to move. But the whole idea is to get them away from the fire as quickly as you can. Um, we always kid around that the most important way you handle the victim is when you get to the front door where the cameras are. Besides that, almost anything else goes because you have to get them out of that danger. Did you have any go-to moves for, uh, for victim removal? Or what, what's your favorite sets you like to teach? So, so most times you're able to get underneath their armpits. Um, I was very fortunate most times when we had a bigger victim, there was more than one of us. You know, the inside team was always three people. 
So there was always someone else close by. Uh, most times by the time you announced you had a victim and you got them kind of straightened out, there was someone there to, to give you a hand. Um, you know, the hard part is if they're real close to the fire and there's not water on the fire where you can't stand up and try to get underneath their armpits. Um, so some people have had luck with an arm bar, just locking their arm against yours and pulling on their arm, possibly dislocating the shoulder, um, but you know, trying to move them that way. Um, it's not easy. And the bigger the victims, the harder it is. The closer to the fire they are, the harder it becomes. Right? So those all those variables um, that you, you have to find out what works for you. Um, what, give me your funniest fire ground story. Oh, I have to think. There's been a lot. There's a lot of firehouse funny stories. Um, funniest fire ground story. I don't know. I'll have to come back to that. I have to think of one I can tell you. <laughs> we began to experience some technical difficulties towards the end of that podcast, which allowed us to pause for about 24 hours. And Pressler was able to uh, think about some fireground stories that he wanted to share with us. So we're going to pick back up in part two. Here we go. So the ones that I, I thought of, I thought about a couple with a particular chief that we ran in with quite frequently. Um, that was a real uniform uh, that was his big thing. You know, he would check for uniforms and, you know, he, he had a, he had quite the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That was his thing. He knew, you know, he was going to come, he's going to check your socks and your t-shirts and see what kind of equipment you had on. So to make a long story short, you know, we went to a fire the one night down in Harlem and uh, we, we checked to see who was working that night and he wasn't working. So uh, we didn't maybe have quite the right uniforms on. So uh, we're coming out of the building and as we're walking out of the building, we see him standing there and it's like the brakes went on, you know, we bumped into each other and it's like, oh, we can't go back to the rig. We don't have the right, uh, we didn't have boots on. We had our shoes on. Um, the above fire team, the roof guys, they very rarely, rarely wore their boots unless certain chiefs were working. So uh, Chris Blackwell, rest in peace, he uh, died on 9-11. He was wearing bunker pants, so he went back to the rig, and one by one, he bought us boots. And we'd switch out of our shoes into our boots and walk back to the rig. Well, the chief was an adult, and after the third time Chris walked towards the fire building, he knew something was up. So we ended up like chasing each other around the rig. He was trying to catch us, and we were trying to get away from him. And it was uh, kind of comical if you watch it from a distance, you know, but he, he was pretty good. He was very fair with everything else that he did. So one night we go to another fire in Harlem and uh, a vacant building is using a towel ladder on it. And he turns around and tells us the rescue officer, um, you guys can take up. And it was the second alarm at that point. He had fire on four or five floors. And we're starting back to the rig. And I had heard something over the air that didn't make a lot of sense. It was a not a deep building. It was a wide building. And the towel ladder should have been able to put water in the front and out the back. 
That's how shallow a building it was. And someone was given a report, either from the rear yard or the roof of another building, that the tower ladder wasn't hitting all the fire. So uh, it just didn't make sense. So as we're walking back to the rig, I said to the boss, hey, Lou, I'm just going to take a look around the corner. Something doesn't sound right here. And uh, he goes, well, let me tell the chief. So he goes back and tells the chief, because if he told us to leave and we didn't, he would want to know why. So uh, we walk around the corner. We look up at the next building in line. Now we're going down 145 Street. And there's heavy smoke pushing out of four windows on the third floor. So we go and get a ladder. And by the time we get back, it's fire out the four windows. And then it gets into the next building. So instead of a second alarm probably will hold, the chief ended up going for a third alarm, had fire in three buildings. So an hour and a half later, we're getting ready to leave again. And uh, the chief tells our lieutenant, he goes, hey, thank you very much. I was all set to go under control, um, you know, and you guys saved my uh, rear end by figuring something wasn't right. And the boss said, well, it wasn't me. It was Pressler. So he goes, oh, okay. Tell him thank you for me. So meanwhile, we go back to the rig. We're getting changed. We're all wet. So I changed into clothes that pretty much weren't uh, appropriate for the chief that was working. So I'm standing at the back of the rig, and we're bullshitting. And uh, I keep looking down the street. I can see him at the command post. And we're talking, putting the gear back together, talking to other people. And I look down. All of a sudden, he's gone. And now I'm looking all over for him. And uh, with that, I turn to my right, and he's standing next to me. And he came up and he said, I just wanted to thank you. Um, that would have been real embarrassing if uh, if I had gotten under control and then would have had to go for a third alarm. So uh, I just wanted to thank you. And then he looked me up and down, looking at my uniform, and pretty much said, uh, have a good night. So we were even. He, he didn't want to go uh, into the, the next day owing us anything. So, but he was a very fair boss. He was a good boss. He just wanted to make sure everybody was dressed right. So we had a couple other run-ins with him, but all pretty good. Uh, I love that story. There's always a uniform Nazi among us in the in the chief world, it seems. So that's pretty cool. Uh, give us a good search story, something out of the norm. So I was working in Brooklyn at the time. Uh, we had a fire in a frame up near a 248 engine. And we got in as the first new truck, um, two-story flat roof private dwelling, tire first floor. The whole front porch is a sea of fire. Um, about 2 o'clock in the morning, group of civilians and a couple of police officers pointing at the left front window on the second floor, saying a lady was just in that window. She was banging on the glass. So we're looking, and she's not there now. So the engine gets waters. They knock down the ports. Um, the OV gets his ladder to the front porch, dives in that window. We get inside. We get up the stairs. <clears throat> Pretty uh, horrendous conditions on the second floor. We make our search. We can't find anybody. The OV gets in that front room. There's no one there. We meet up with him. Now we're like, well, maybe she dove down the stairs and she's incinerated on the first floor. So we go down and we look. No one on the first floor. So the boss radios out to the chief and goes, hey, chief, uh, you know, did the police officers see this lady or are they just repeating what the other people said? And he's like, oh, no, no. So they said she was up there. They saw her. So now we do another search and we can't find anybody. So now we're tearing this building apart and there's no woman in this building. So 
Fires knocked down. We have no explanation. They're picking up lines, washing down. Um, and two guys are bringing a ladder out of the rear yard. And as they're walking down the side of the house, they hear moaning from the other side of the, basically the hedges. And uh, this lady had left that front left window, had ran the length of the house, and had gone out the back right rear window and cleared the hedges and was in the backyard of the neighboring house. And she did live, but she must have been uh, some trooper to, to run that far, never opened the window, just dove through it, landed in the next yard. So, you know, the importance of trying to find these people when they say there's somebody up there. So many good stories. It's, uh, it's hard to remember all the good ones that I've heard in order to prompt you, but uh, give us something else. Yeah, most of them, you know, were all in a reaction to um, something that we were talking about at the time. You know, I, I can think of another one that was kind of funny. The chief got mad at us. Um, we had a fire up near 49 truck. We went up there to the roof. And the way the block was, we couldn't get anywhere near the front of the fire building. And it turns out it wasn't to the correct roof. It was to the exposure. Um, so we looked, had a good fire going. They needed some topside ventilation. No one else was going to get there. So we jumped across the gangway. So it was probably only three foot. So we threw our tools over and kind of just leaped across. And uh, when we came down, the chief was not impressed. He was kind of furious that we had done it because from where his perspective was, it looked a lot worse than what our perspective was. We were taking like a giant step. He's looking up at us and we're jumping across this uh, great divide. So, you know, a lot of it is the perspective of what people are looking at. And, you know, his was a lot different than ours. Yeah, it sounds like some uh, real TV type stuff that you got going there. Uh, probably seemed innocent at the time, but now uh, as a, in a chief role, I think I'd lose my mind if I saw guys doing that. Yeah, it wasn't that far. I mean, it wasn't like we were jumping 10 feet. It was only about three feet. So guys that are into the job and whatnot uh, are always finding, trying to find a way to uh, get a jump on the runs, to uh, be in a position to get work, to uh, maybe get on a box that they hadn't. Uh, you're a fire buff. You've traveled around the country quite a bit. What have you done or what have you seen uh, for guys to be able to try to get a, get a jump on that run? Well, you know, most of that, like New York City, um, you had to get friendly with the dispatchers and, and they would tip you off, you know. All of a sudden, you'd hear a voice out of the ceiling say, pull up your boots. And that was an indication that a run was coming in and it sounded like work. Um, I had a couple of friends in a Brooklyn CO. We relocated a couple of times before the box went out. It wasn't our box, but when it was the second alarm, we got to be the second alarm truck. So, you know, firefighters are pretty ingenious when it comes to this stuff. Um, finding ways to tap into the system. Um, having people watch the computer screen as often as they can. You know, the only downside to that is you end up screwing yourself out of some real good fires because you're getting there before you're being sent. But considering we're in this for them and not us, um, it, it's a pretty good thing to do. I think the bigger problem is, is that the dispatch centers have gotten, I don't know if worse is the right word, um, but they're not as efficient as they used to be. You know, before the computers, 
you knew where the companies were. You knew the box numbers. You knew where they were coming from. If you listen to old Brooklyn tapes, you know, Alta Janowitz, George Munch, Warren Fuchs, they were telling companies, hey, look out for another company. They're probably coming down this street you're approaching. They knew the borough that well. And now people are just looking at a computer screen. If the computer screen don't tell them to do something, they have they have no clue. So we've lost a little bit on that end. Um, and I don't know if we can get it back. You know, computers have made the job easier, but they've also just taken away from some of the history of how things used to go out. Yeah, now, no doubt there's nothing as cool as listening to some old uh, FDNY radio traffic uh, where the dispatchers were real into the job and uh, nothing against current dispatchers and whatnot, but it seems like the more we've civilianized uh, the fire alarm office, maybe the less appropriate information we get. Uh, although we do get a ton of information, they don't quite exactly know what, know what we want. So uh, I don't know that we can ever bring that back, but maybe we can help train them to, uh, to understand our job a little bit better and, and let us know what we want. Uh, you're such a history buff. I'd love, once we get this computer stuff figured out, uh, to have you on again and, and, and just talk strictly fire history. I know you've got, uh, uh, got a bunch of memorabilia and have been really a student of the job since the beginning of the time. So it'd be cool to, to hear your talk on evolutions of things. Like you got me thinking when you were starting to talk about the, uh, the scuba flashlights and whatnot. So. Well, very good, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. And when I get this fixed, we'll figure out a way to do it again. But uh, Chief Pressler, I appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing your, your passion for the job and uh, more importantly, what you've done for the fire service. I know you've shared so much information and uh, served as a mentor from afar for so many folks and, uh, and taking the time to pour into to guys individually as well. So for that, I am uh, grateful. Well, folks, that's going to wrap our uh, session up tonight with Chief Pressler. And until next time, thanks for listening to Journeyman Firefighter Podcast.